Mark 3, beginning in verse 7, it tells us, But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, from Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. For he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. And the unclean spirits, or demons, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. And Father, we humbly ask for grace from your Holy Spirit as we continue now in this time of worship by giving our attention to the truth and the inspired, written, and authoritative word of God that you use to speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. So Lord, prepare each one of us accordingly. Give us an ear to hear what your Spirit would say this morning through this part of your word and to this assembled part of your church this day. We ask, speak to us, Lord, in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen, amen. You know, there was a statement that got coined many years ago. Uh, Pastor Chuck, uh, the founder of our movement, said it, and it's very profound. In fact, if you could add in one more proverb in the book of Proverbs, it probably would be a really good one. He used to often say, blessed are the flexible for they shall not be broken. And boy, there's just such great wisdom to that, life wisdom to that, learning how to be flexible in life, how keeping from becoming rigid and stubborn and stringent and one-track mind and being willing to yield and to realize that sometimes flexibility makes a world of difference, not only to suffer a brokenness in a situation uh, or the brokenness maybe of our own inward spirit, but even to allow us to experience something that maybe God wants us to, but we just need to be willing to yield. We just need to be willing to be flexible or to adjust if you would. And sometimes the reality is we find even in the spiritual life and even in the Lord's ministry that sometimes in order to go forward, we may have to first go backward. We may have to adjust and go to this direction or that direction. Sometimes, contrary to our thinking, the way forward with the Lord is not always just a straight line. Sometimes the Lord may lead us to retreat back to be able to perhaps then ultimately go forward. And we see Jesus right in the midst of this snapshot that Mark gives us next of his ministry here doing some of those very things, being very flexible, being very practical. And in connection to that, here we get a description of one of the most thriving times in our Lord Jesus's ministry. It is amazing how what starts sometimes just as a spark or a small fire can spread and grow and ultimately become an absolute forest fire. And I would say in connection to Jesus's ministry, the love of Jesus and his compassion and power, which was directing him to help broken lives one by one was something that now we see began spreading like a spiritual forest fire. And it's something that begins to really take momentum 
This is what Mark is drawing our attention to in this next section in his gospel. We get a record of really now the popularity and we might say the magnetism of Jesus at this time in his ministry work. Now, that being said, we also know this is a season in Jesus' ministry where we have seen him in our study in Mark's gospel facing also a lot of opposition and a lot of resistance. And as the Lord's work is moving forward, as the Spirit's ministry is causing things to flourish, there is a lot of opposition and resisting happening simultaneously. And that resistance we've seen was stemming from the hard hearts and the jealousy, particularly of the religious leaders at that time. In fact, in our most recent section we studied, remember Jesus had kindly healed a man on the Sabbath day. He restored the hand of the man who, remember, it was the synagogue who had a withered hand, and he kindly does this life-changing miracle on the Sabbath day, their gathering of worship, transforms a man's life, and instead of the religious leaders rejoicing over the wonderful thing of a changed life and a person being helped, look back with me in verse 6. Can I remind you, this was their response. It says, then the Pharisees went out and immediately they plotted with the Herodians, a political party, against Jesus, how they might destroy him. So instead of celebrating that Jesus helped someone wonderfully, they become more angered, more frustrated. They recruit even more people for their little cause, and they're going to do whatever they can to come against Jesus to stop this work of the Lord. And in fact, it says they actually start plotting how they can destroy him, literally ruin his life. Now, that's interesting as a backdrop because look with me beginning of our text in verse 7, the first part of it. Jesus no doubt knows what they're plotting and intending to do. Verse 7 says, but Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. So notice the wisdom here of Jesus in response. Instead of striving against them, he just adjusts in flexibility for the sake of the greater good and for the sake of the welfare of all the people that he loved and he cared about. Notice this example of Jesus and his course of action in connection to human opposition. Sensing that their hearts were hard, we saw that back in verse 5, being very aware that there was a lack of receptivity, that they were not going to be responsive to him or what the Lord was trying to show to them, that they were now with a very severely evil agenda directing their hearts. It simply says, in fact, you might want to underline it, verse 7, Jesus withdrew. Jesus withdrew. God in flesh drew back. Jesus disconnected he pulled back, he removed himself, as well as removed those he loved, his disciples who he loved and cared about, and he drew back from where he was and he withdrew from what he was currently doing, using wisdom, providing no doubt leadership to his disciples, taking into consideration the glory of God and the greater good. Jesus now withdraws from the synagogue and it says, verse 7, he went out to the sea, that would be the Sea of Galilee. Why? In order to keep ministering without hindrance, without encumbrances, without things getting in the way and stopping what would be for the greater good of God's glory. Jesus always prioritized what would be in the best interest of two things, the glory of God 
and helping human lives. That was always his top priority. What would glorify God and what will help lives the best? And we know, don't we? We know Jesus did not withdraw because of intimidation. It's not like he was feeling bullied. He was God, right? So it's not that Jesus is intimidated or, or backing down here. As God, he has all the power and authority. He could have easily stood his ground. He could have took their breath away in a moment if he wanted to. He could have easily overthrew the religious leaders. And think about it. Jesus was totally right in this situation. They were the ones that were completely wrong. He was totally right. He had all the authority of heaven behind him. And look, there were times, let me say in balance, there were times when Jesus took a strong stand. There were times when Jesus strongly rebuked the Pharisees and the religious leaders. There were times when Jesus took strong stands against evil and wrong, where he overturns the tables of the money changers and he cleanses the temple with a whip. And as one man in the righteous anger of the Lord, he drives out a multitude of people as he takes a strong stand against what is evil. So there were times when Jesus took strong stands and dealt with things sternly, yet here, thinking about the welfare of his disciples, wanting to help lives and wanting to continue progressing forward in the ministry he was doing for the glory of God, Jesus opts to be what? Flexible. And he says, in this situation, it's just best to withdraw. And he pulls back from the synagogue. He moves his ministry once again outside to the Sea of Galilee because he determined that that was the better thing in that situation. Shows the wisdom of the Lord. Shows the balance of the Lord. That he was willing to yield and be flexible and to adjust. He withdraws so that he might technically, as he draws back, have the freedom to go forward. Again, Jesus comes backwards in order to get the ministry going forward. He withdraws from something and says, you know what? If that's not going to help the ministry go forward, then I'm going to draw back and adjust so that the ministry of the Lord can continue to operate. And here we see him doing this. And we know from the next verses, the ministry is further expanding. So apparently that was the right choice. And I think this teaches us a great lesson by way of application. There is great wisdom here from the Lord how to use balance in handling hard matters at times when they arise in our lives. It may be a little bit different details, but there will be situations that will present themselves in our lives that are difficult, maybe that where we're facing resistance, maybe something sinful and evil is happening, maybe we're running into a scenario where we're feeling opposed, but we're just something difficult generally, or it's just seeming like it's not working out and we're grinding the gears against a particular situation, and sometimes there is wisdom with, yes, taking a stand. And sometimes that is the right thing to do. Sometimes it is the right thing to stand for righteousness and to take a strong stand. But then there are other times when the right thing to do may be to just draw back and to just retreat or to just completely disconnect in some way in flexibility because it may be that with treating or drawing back or withdrawing may be what is best in that situation for God's glory. It may be what's best in that situation for the ministry in a particular situation to keep going forward, or that there would not be hindrance to our own spiritual life or to our family's spiritual life. And there's that wisdom, again, Ecclesiastes, we studied it on Wednesday nights not too long ago. There's that passage, we all know it. There's a time and a season for every purpose under heaven, right? A time to speak, and then a time to just be silent. 
There's a time to, it says, embrace a situation, and it also says there's a time to refrain from embracing. Oftentimes, we have got to embrace you. There's times to embrace something, and there's other times I've learned in my own Christian walk and in the ministry where there's times where it's like, you know what? Not getting in that one. Here's how I'm going to minister in that situation. I'm going to send in long-range artillery. It's called prayer. You get much less beat up than when you rush in there and do hand-to-hand combat all the time. There are times when embracing is the right situation. And there are times when you even ingest in the midst of something. Maybe initially you are embracing it. Maybe initially you do speak. Maybe initially you do. But then there may come a time where you realize or you perceive or you discern because of the condition of someone's heart that you say, you know what? Now's the time to, to withdraw and, and to just pray and to just let God work and to let the sovereignty of God and the power of God work in a situation. And that may be the very thing that produces progress. And this is also a display, really, folks, when you look of it as Jesus' power, even as the latter verses where you see his power doing miracles and healing demons, this is just as much the power of Jesus on display because it's called the power of self-control. It's the power of meekness. He had all heaven's authority dwelling within him, and Jesus exercised the power, though righteously angered, verse 5 told us that he looked around at anger at the hardness of their hearts. So he was righteously angered, but in his righteous anger, he displays the power of yielding to the spirit of God to overrule any tendency in his human spirit that would cause him to err in a wrong response. And so in meekness, he keeps his authority and power under control, under godly control, because Jesus never abused his authority. He never abused his power. Instead, he maintained incredible composure because he desired to do God's will. And look, learning to rule our own spirit, folks, for God's glory, that is sometimes one of the most powerful acts of obedience, maintaining composure. It tells us in James chapter 3 this, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. In the meekness of wisdom. The wisdom that is from above is first pure, that is pure-hearted, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits. So one of the characterizing marks of wisdom from above is when you have a pure heart and you're looking to just be peaceable and honor the Lord, sometimes you say, you know what? I'm willing to yield in this situation. I'll just yield to whatever is best for God's glory or human beings or the welfare of others. And here Jesus displays this greatly. So Jesus withdraws, and then it says, verse 7, a great multitude from Galilee followed him and from Judea and Jerusalem Idumea, verse 8, beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon and a great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, they came to him. So Mark records now the tremendous expansion we see here and the growth of Jesus' ministry. Two times in verse 7 and 8, it says that great multitudes of people Great multitudes of people, likely thousands, are now coming to him, and not just coming to him, but notice it also says there in verse 7, they were following him. That is, people were making decisions to follow the lordship of Jesus Christ over their lives. They weren't just coming to Jesus as spectators. They were coming to Jesus, and they were also making decisions in great multitudes now 
to embrace the lordship of Jesus to rule over them, and they're now following Jesus, meaning they're no longer following what they once were. And this ministry is now growing and expanding as Jesus is conducting it in this season. In fact, it describes the scope of where all the different multitudes are coming from there. It says, verse 7, they were coming from Galilee. That's the northern region around the Sea of Galilee. It says they were also coming to him, verse 7 and 8, from Judea and Jerusalem. That would be the southern region of Israel. It also says that multitudes were coming from Idumea, from beyond the Jordan. That is outside the borders of Israel, the area of Edom. That is southeast of the, of the Jordan from that region, as well as coming all the way as far north, he says in verse 8, from Tyre and Sidon, north of the border of Israel, which is the area of modern-day Lebanon. So you have multitudes coming to Jesus now, not only from Israel, but even outside of the boundaries of the nation, are now coming to Jesus. And notice as well, verse 8, the Holy Spirit tells us why they were coming to Jesus and deciding to follow him. Look at verse 8 there. Here's why they were coming to Jesus and deciding to follow him. It says, when they heard how many things he was doing. That is all the incredible teachings that Jesus was sharing about the kingdom of God as he spoke with such grace and authority like no one had ever spoke before. And people were hearing the voice of God speaking to their hearts in ways like they had never encountered before in the religious system of the day. Lives were hearing his voice, and when they were responding, people were being transformed. They were becoming completely different human beings. Their lives were being changed as they responded to the voice of Jesus. People were receiving the assurance of Jesus that their sins were forgiven and that they could be at peace with God. On top of that, as described in these verses here, there were powerful miracles the Lord was doing, various types of healings. The Lord also was doing incredible things, miraculously liberating people from demonic spirits that were controlling their lives and ruining them. And people were hearing about the many, many things that Jesus was doing, lives being changed, people being transformed. I love one of my favorite verses describing the ministry of Jesus comes off the lips of Peter in Acts chapter 10, and it tells us that Peter says this about Jesus's ministry in Acts 10. You know how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed under the power of the devil. I love that description of Jesus's life. Again, the Gospels give us a snapshot of some of what Jesus did. They don't record every single instance of his three-and-a-half-year ministry. They give us samples and snapshots. But Peter says, as one who journeyed with him and watched firsthand, Peter says, here's what I can tell you. I saw the Holy Spirit and power, and he said, I saw Jesus going around just doing good. What a wonderful thing. Just going around, just doing good things for people going around doing what was good, teaching, ministering, serving, healing, delivering people, exercising the power of the Spirit of the Lord, lovingly and kindly, Jesus was doing good in people's lives, helping people, healing people, liberating people, changing people. The Holy Spirit declares it there in verse 8 by simply saying how many things he was doing. I like that. That's an underlying phrase in this section for me. The many things he 
was doing. And what does the Bible tell us about Jesus? He's the same, what, yesterday, today, and forever. Did Jesus die on the cross for our sins? Absolutely. But he rose from the dead and he's alive today. And so Jesus is still to this day always doing things. That is still the heart and desire of the Lord because he's the same. He hasn't changed. And even today, there are always things that Jesus is doing, ways that he is at work in people's lives, in families, in marriages, in situations. Jesus is always doing good things. And on top of that, there are always things as well that Jesus is wanting to do. Yeah, there are things he's already doing, but this is the heart of Jesus, and we know that there are things that Jesus is always wanting to do. So guess what we should be doing? Seeking the Lord and trying to find out, Lord, what is it you're wanting to do? What is it you're wanting to do next? What are the next things that you want to do? Lord, help us to see it and to know it so that we can yield to it, and that in a sense, we can just come alongside and we can participate in what the Lord is doing because we know that this is his heart the things that he was doing. What a beautiful description of Jesus's ministry. Well, verse nine tells us as all these multitudes, thousands are now coming to him, verse nine. So he told his disciples that, look what it says, a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, because they were all just swarming in on him, lest they should crush him. Look how very practical the Lord Jesus is their, their ministry. I mean, you want to talk about managing his ministry work in a very practical way, lest the logistics of the things he was doing cause things to become disorderly and it began to get complicated and hindered by circumstances. I mean, this is what you call good problems in ministry, right? These are good problems. There are so many people coming that they're literally crowding around him, swarming around him like a mob that it actually starts to cause logistical complications. So he tells his fellow workers, listen, boys, here's what I want you to do. Get a small boat ready. Because when the crowds come, instead of me being hindered and encumbered and not being able to be the most effective in ministry, he says, have a small boat. We can get in it. You can push a little bit offshore, and it will create a natural amphitheater effect as I go out into the water a little bit, and it will give me greater freedom to be able to speak to the people, and it would enable them to best handle the growing crowds desiring ministry so that in the most efficient way possible, in a way that was very orderly and very well managed, they could still keep ministering to people by using order and practical wisdom to be able to handle the affairs of what was going on. Notice how Jesus used practical wisdom and ordinary approaches to resolve problems. Jesus, you might fairly say, did heaven's ministry in a very down-to-earth way. In a very down-to-earth way. When the great multitudes were there and they were about to feed the 5,000-plus women, children, maybe up to 10,000 people, what did Jesus do? He told the disciples, I, here's your one job. Go out, sit people down in groups of 50s and 100s. Okay, we could do that. We could do that, Lord. Okay, one, two, three, four, five. You 50, sit right there. Did my job, Lord. But how practical is that? Order, practicality, and it made the ministry distribution of the food and the miracle of the Lord much more efficient. It kept the ministry much more effective. 
But here is this beautiful example of Jesus working supernaturally in very natural ways using everyday things and just normal practices. Sometimes the solution, the approach to handling things in our lives that the Lord is involved in is honestly sometimes a matter of using wisdom and taking a look at, look, what might be the most practical thing to do in this situation? What would be the most practical way to address this? We might say, what works? What would work? Or what wouldn't work? And so sometimes it's simply a matter of realizing, please hear this, that God is in the ordinary. Sometimes we're too hyper-spiritual as human beings. And we think that sometimes being practical or using common sense or everyday things, listen, God created all that's physical, the heaven and the earth, right? God created everything. Yes, he's spiritual, supernatural, he's a spirit, but God also is in all the ordinary stuff, all the practical stuff. In the midst of the teaching of the gifts of the, of the Spirit, even in the New Testament, he says, let all things be done decently and in order. So again, balancing again this reality that there should be order, and order is a very helpful function, particularly like Jesus here, where he's saying something needs to be handled, something needs to be resolved. And so when something needs to be resolved or something needs to be handled, seek the Lord and say, Lord, would you show us what works? What do we need to do practically? Is there a practical way we could handle this different that would make it work better or make it move forward or keep it from being encumbered? Sometimes it's a very practical, logical way of thinking through things that is just as much a direction of the Lord. Verse 10 then goes on to tell us, for Jesus healed many so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. So the Holy Spirit there in verse 10 through Mark focuses our attention now on the power of Jesus over physical illness, that many had afflictions in their physical bodies, various forms of disease and illness and pain, which is a part of living in a fallen world with temporal broken human bodies, that to some measure and some degree in various forms, All of our human bodies at times become afflicted by injury, by illness. He uses the term there in verse 10, those who were experiencing afflictions, and afflictions refer to something going on in the body that's causing trouble in the body, that's causing malfunction in the body, pain in the body, suffering in the body, that's afflictions. Something going on in the body that is causing pain, trouble, malfunction, suffering. And it says those afflicted were trying to do what? Verse 10, get in touch with Jesus. They were coming and trying to get in touch with Jesus directly because they knew that Jesus had the power to miraculously heal, that he had healed other people. In fact, it says right there in verse 10 of Jesus, he healed many. Part of Jesus' earthly ministry was compassionately at times using his power in relieving people who were afflicted with health problems, resolving health issues, giving bodily recovery, removing pain, removing physical struggles, miraculously at times eradicating disease and illness. And whenever Jesus healed, it was always in order to show kindness And it was always also for the glory of God and in alignment with the greater purposes of God. In fact, one of the stories, we'll see it not too long from now in the Gospel of Mark, 
gives to us a beautiful example that reminds to us this reality of the healing of Jesus and how wonderful that even when we're not finding help or healing, perhaps in medical approaches, that that's not the end, that the Lord is not limited by those things. It tells us in Mark chapter 5, there was a woman with great faith and expectancy and attitude. She had been plagued by a health problem for 12, not days, not months, years, for 12 years. And it says this, now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years. She was hemorrhaging. She suffered many things from many different physicians. She spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. And when she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd, touched his garment, for she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Incredible faith. Immediately, the fountain of blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. What an incredible story that illustrates a current reality. How wonderful, like this woman, she tried physicians, as many. She dumped out tons of money, and she didn't even get better. She got worse. And the chronic health issue remained, but ultimately, when she came into contact with Jesus, a miraculous healing took place in her body. Boy, isn't it wonderful to know that we're not limited to just human medical practice? Human medical practice, God can use that. It's beneficial. It's helpful. I'm thankful to live in this country where we have access. We are so blessed to modern medicine in ways where many people in the world don't even have access to, and it's a wonderful thing, and I believe God can heal through medicine and through health professionals, yet how wonderful to know what we do, that though those still have limitations, that's not the end, Right? And, and that's the reality. Any medical professional, they call it, we're practicing medicine. Do you pick up that first word? Practicing? I had a friend who was a brilliant, brilliant doctor at the church we were pastoring back at Calvary Chapel of York before we were here. And he, he was the one that said that to me. He said, Tony, I practice medicine. He was from the Dominican Republic. I mean, he was a, just an incredibly intelligent guy, very gifted man. But he said, we practice medicine. There's limits with us. We don't know everything. We can't do everything. But how wonderful to know, despite medical professionals being limited, we serve a Lord who has no limitations, that he has miraculous power still to do things. And this woman came in a spirit of faith and expectancy without understanding. The limitations are done with medical professionals. But she came to Jesus in a spirit of faith and expectancy, and she believed, if I can just connect with the Lord. I believe he'll make me well. And the Lord rewarded her with a miraculous gift of healing. What a great thing to remind ourselves of from time to time that our faith might be stirred to seek Jesus, to see if a gift miraculously of healing may be something the Lord may want for us if we find ourselves in such a situation. Well, verse 12, Mark then shows his power over the demons finally, saying, and the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned the demons that they should not make him known. So notice the Holy Spirit next shows Mark 
through Mark's writing here, not just the power and authority over disease and physical infirmity, but now he shows the power and authority of Jesus over the demonic forces. He describes them in verse 11 as unclean spirits, which refer to angels that have become corrupted, defiled, as they rebelled against God with Satan as he turned away and have now entered into a dark and corrupted condition, demons as we refer to them as, which through dark ways and lies as angelic fallen spirits work in supernatural ways to pollute and defile and control and ruin the lives of human beings, to seek to prompt human beings to rebel against God's will and do self-destructive things that are sinful that will ruin their lives. And the Bible teaches that demons not only, listen folks, not only can influence people's lives, but when someone is not a Christian, who is safely filled and sealed with the Holy Spirit of God, an unsaved soul still has a spiritual vulnerability and a vacancy to demonic spirits. If your life is filled with the Spirit because you are a child of God, you are sealed and you have nothing to worry about. A devil may hassle you, a demon may bother you, but they can't take control of you. But if someone is not a Christian genuinely and the Spirit of God does not dwell in them, please understand their inward life is still like a vacant motel room. And a demonic spirit has the ability and can have access to even enter inside of them and then such a person, even worse, becomes demon-possessed. We saw back in Mark chapter 1, they brought many to Jesus who were demon-possessed. That phrase is used 12 times, referring to when a demonic spirit enters into a person's life and literally rules them from within, literally controls their inner life, causing horrible symptomatic effects in that person's life, mentally, emotionally, sometimes physically, spiritually. But literally, a demon is ruling them from the inside, causing all types of horrible symptomatic effects. Mark chapter 5, again, we see that pictured very intensely, a man possessed by a demon there. It tells us that that man was dwelling among the tombs, that is, he was hanging out in caves where dead bodies were, talk about a dark place, and no one could bind him not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, neither could anyone tame him. Notice, he had this bizarre supernatural strength, because a demon was at work inside of him. They were chaining him and shackling him for his own safety and welfare, and the welfare of the people around him, and he was bursting the chains off, living among the tombs in dark ways. And it says, night and day, this man was in the mountains and the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. What's that? Self-mutilation. Destroying your own life. The demon was directing him not only to do very bizarre things, but literally self-mutilation because that's what demonic influences do, right? Jesus said the devil comes to rob kill and destroy. Yet, even as we see in Mark 5, that man radically changed by Jesus and put back into his right mind by the power of the Lord. What does it tell us here in verse 11? It says, when the demons in people saw Jesus, they fell down before him and said, what? You are the son of God. 
In other words, when people who had an unclean spirit ruling within them saw Jesus, people was bringing a broken deliverance in their inward spirit to where that demon was bowing to the authority of Jesus in submission. Again, keep in mind, demons are what originally? Angels who have fallen. So demons have been in heaven. They know who Jesus is, trust me. They know he is the eternally existent son of God, and they are not in the slightest way confused about who has ultimate power and authority. And when these demons within people saw Jesus, they were compelled by his power, and they declared Jesus' deity. But notice, Jesus did not desire their assistance in ministry, telling people he was the son of God, because verse 12 says, he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. In other words, Jesus sternly said to them, listen, shut your mouth. I don't need your help to do God's work. And he tells these demons here to be silent. And what does Jesus do? He silences the dark voices of these demonic spirits. What a beautiful thing to remind ourselves of. Look, folks, the devil and the demonic realm want to use schemes of darkness to defile people's lives, to ruin people's lives, to deceive people, and the power of that supernatural demonic realm, listen, it is strong. That's why people become enslaved and literally controlled by spiritual influences. And I think sometimes one of the greatest mistakes we make in our country is there are too many things that we don't realize maybe there's a spiritual influence behind the major complications going on in that person's life. And we overlook that reality because, look, the demonic spirits, though strong, they're nothing in comparison to Jesus. When they come into contact with Jesus, they bow down in submission, and Jesus sets people free miraculously by his authority. I love 1 John 3, 8. It says this, The reason the Son of God appeared was so that he might destroy the works of of the devil. I love that. Jesus is able to destroy the works of the devil by his power and his authority. What a wonderful snapshot Mark gives to us here of the power and the authority of Jesus and the many things that he was doing. And look, let me perhaps say this morning as a way to connect us to communion, maybe the most powerful thing our Lord has ever done is what Philippians 2 describes, that as the almighty God, the eternally existent son of God, he came to earth and he humbled himself and became a man and let people mock him and disgrace him and spit on him and beat him and rip his beard out of his face and punch him and torture him, and scourge, and whip him, and then crucify him on a cross, and he fully yielded to all of that because the power of his love for you and for me to save us, to forgive us, that he powerfully submitted to the will of God for the salvation of our soul. And that's what we get to rejoice and appreciate in that our Lord who did that also resurrected by his power also. Let's stand together and let's pray. Father, thank you for giving to us the word of God and this portion of your word particularly that reminds us 
of the great power and authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, many of us in this room right here, we've been transformed. We've been changed. And we're so thankful that, Lord, we can know that you still have the power to keep doing that. And so we ask, Lord, as we spend this time together, entering back into worship and preparing our hearts for communion, that you would direct our time by your Spirit's ministry, that you would be glorified, and that, Lord, we would be able to reflect and to remember how wonderful your Son is. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship the Lord for a song together, and then we'll begin preparing our hearts for communion together.